Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, joined as always by my co-host, Matt Willoughby, here to talk about... What are we here to talk about, Matt? I, I would assume we're here to talk about the new skydiving simulator that <laughs> came out by Nintendo. Uh, I heard it might be part of a franchise that we review as a podcast, but really, it's we all know it's just a skydiving simulator. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, N- Nintendo Flight Simulator 2023. Yeah. I, I really actually kind of wish you could put some Boeing airplane uh, like wings or something on the glider and fly around or maybe a helicopter blade. That would be actually be really fun to cross connect Microsoft Flight Simulator with uh, Tears of the Kingdom. I think that would be fun. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody's actually currently working on a way to make a helicopter in this game. It sounds impossible, but uh, people are doing lots of impossible things. So who knows what's going to happen? Uh, anyway, regardless, yes, we're here to talk about Tears of the Kingdom. I don't know if y'all heard, big old week in Zelda. Um, seriously, like, just such a massive event. Uh, we've been excited about it for a long time. The lead-up has been a long time coming. Um, finally, the day is here, and it seems like this game is living up to all of the expectations and hopes that anybody had for it. And then some, we're going to talk a little bit about the reception, our first impressions of the game, talking a little bit about the introductory area. Before we do that though, I have not one, but two guests to introduce tonight, Matt. Uh, this is only the second time in history. We've had two guests on at the same time. What, uh, which was the other time? Uh, we did Max and Melora for Ice Palace. Wow. Okay. Well, there y'all go. That's a that's a hell of an act to follow. But I think that they have what it takes. I think that they can. Uh, I think that they can deliver an equivalent performance. They seem like uh, seem like sociable young lads. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am joined tonight by the third of the Willoughby trifecta. Once again, Jackson Willoughby. Always great to see you on the pod. Super glad to be here to talk about Wii Sports Resorts uh, sequel. <laughs> you know, I mean, skydiving and <laughs> flying and, you know, you get to train with swords and golf, probably. Yeah, probably. Oh, I'm, sure there's go- I'm sure there's golf in here somewhere. Yeah. The, there the there se- was in Breath of the Wild. You remember the Goron golfing game? Yeah, yeah. I guarantee you there's golf here. <laughs> it's been more than seven years since Wii Sports Resorts came out. So I guess we've been waiting longer for that than we have for Tears of the Kingdom uh, Zelda follow up. I'm glad that I'm glad that you've uh, that you've got some payoff on your incredibly niche desire over there, Jackson. Good for you. We want good things for you. Of course, you are not our only guest on the podcast this evening. We are also thrilled to welcome friend of the podcast. If you're in the Discord channel, you know him as the Magic Pixel. Ladies and gentlemen, Dante, friend of the family, has joined us to talk about this early section of Tears of the Kingdom. How you doing, Dante? Uh, I'm doing swell. Um, I've had way too much free time on my hands to play this game. Um, I uh, I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, and I, I do think it is the Wii Sports Resort sequel. Me and Jax, we played Wii Sports Resort all the time uh, when we hung out. Um, Middle, middle school. Oh, uh, I was I was in middle school, high school. Yeah. Anytime I hung out, um, it was a very fun, stupid, like two, three hours. Um, 
Yeah, if, if it was multiplayer in this game, I'm sure we'd be doing the same thing. <laughs> I'm I'm glad that if nothing else, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom has awakened these these fun little gems of memories within you. Um, this seems like a really wonderful thing for your uh, for your little friendship relationship you got there. And uh, and I love that, you know, it makes me happy, it makes me feel those good, fuzzy feelings inside. Just real quick, so before we get into our conversation about the game and our impressions and what we've been thinking and feeling, I do want to remind everybody that this episode is going to be a little bit different than what we typically do. Of course, we did just wrap up our coverage and review of another Zelda game. Uh, Season 8 was devoted to A Link Between Worlds. Um, and you know, as of last week, we've completely wrapped that one up, ranked it against all the other games that we played so far. We are, like I said, going to be talking about tears of the kingdom. However, we are not going to be doing it in that format. We are not reviewing this game. We're not doing it in our normal format, um, where we break it down into, you know, dungeons, bloopy trails, whatever. Um, we will do that eventually, but we all felt that it was, it was important to give this game time to kind of marinate. Um, and to get a little bit of distance from its launch. Um, and I f- feel like we all agreed that was the only way that we would ever be able to rank and review it objectively against all these other things. But strike while the iron is hot, I always say. We definitely wanted to get some content out of it because it is a monumental event. And um, to be honest, uh, it's kind of all that we're thinking about and wanting to play right now anyway. It would have been it would have been very difficult to immediately go into another season talking about a Zelda game that wasn't Tears of the Kingdom and try to like critically analyze it at this time. Yeah, I mean, and and honestly, nobody wants to hear us talk about another Zelda game right now because Tears of the Kingdom is on everybody's uh, top of mind. So don't uh, don't give the people what they don't want. Always give the people what they want. Well, maybe not always, but most of the time. When most, you can. most of the time, yeah. Um, so this is going to be the first of what is planned to be four episodes talking about Tears of the Kingdom. Um, you know, if it's going really well and we feel like it needs to be expanded past that, we can have that conversation. But right now we're planning on four episodes. And then we'll be getting into Phantom Hourglass in mid-June. But that is going to be another few weeks away from now. Um A lot of fun stuff that we've all discovered, a lot of feelings that we want to share with y'all. Let's go ahead and get the housekeeping out of the way real quick, and then I'll jump right into explaining what the format is going to be for this episode. We'll go around the table, um, talk to everybody, and find out how we're all feeling about it. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Every week, we play a new section of a Zelda game, then we sit down here to talk and drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and much more. Additionally, one of the benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are Connor, Shepherd Street, Matthew, Chris, Daniel, Fallout 907, Kelso, Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Lennon, Melanie, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, aka Maximum Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are the most legendary of individuals, and I would, <laughs> I would uh, descend into a haunted cavern, uh, get grabbed by a magical hand, find myself in the sky, and then jump from the sky back to the surface with any of y'all any day of the week. 
See, my problem with that is I have a deadly fear of skydiving because heights terrify me. Also, the physics of this don't exactly work out because hitting water at that velocity is exactly the same as hitting concrete because of surface tension. So you're basically signing up to jump to your death for these people. It works in Minecraft. What? Uh, that is That doesn't mean that it works in real life, Dante. Minecraft is not real life. Just like Tears of the Kingdom is not real life, thank God. Tears of the Kingdom is decidedly not real life. Um, and yes, uh, don't even think we can accurately call this a spoiler. It's just a universal truth. Uh, this game plays fast and loose with the laws of physics and human mortality. So, absolutely. Yes, uh, yes. But we love it anyway. You know, I would do everything else except the skydiving part, but that's just a personal fear of mine. So, yeah. I do think it's hysterical, like, because, you know, back when we were talking in the bonus episode about which Hyrule would you want to live in, right? Yeah. It was so tough because, of course, you know, you being you, you you went immediately for Skyloft, right? Because you're Skyloft's like, Sky, Skyward Sword's awesome, Skyloft, it's cozy, it's yeah. happy up there. Yeah. Just one problem you have to fly to get anywhere, and if you fall off your bird, then you're plummeting thousands of feet to your death. So, yeah, and that's a big no go for me, uh, always. So, yeah, that that was why I didn't end up choosing Skyloft. I think we pretty much all chose it was Breath of the Wild. Yeah, I think you're right. To be fair, you would pass out before you even hit the ground, so you would die without even knowing it. Not necessarily. But I mean, I've never fallen to my death, so I guess I don't. I think the G force sure. alone would probably knock you out. How Hopefully. people skydive like they don't pass out. They yeah, don't but pass it's a, out. But in a free fall situation where you're like, I mean, I don't think people, people pass, pass out from. I don't know if anybody that is listening has ever done a skydiving experience. Let us know if passing out is a danger for you. If anybody listening has ever fallen out of a moving plane without a parachute in an uncontrolled free fall. And you were not awake when you hit the ground. <laughs> Let us know. So I, I, I like how we just skipped over the fact that Matt was totally just like, hey, I love you guys, but I wouldn't jump out of, out of a plane to save any of your lives. Like I there's a limit. I wouldn't jump out of a plane for almost anybody. There's like three people in the world I would do that for. One of them is my fiance. So like that list is very small. Yeah. And Lyndon and I are not on that list. You are absolutely correct. Neither of you are on that list. Who's on the list? Uh, fiance, Sawyer, and I don't know, somebody else. Colleen. I don't even think I'd do it for Colleen, to be honest. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad you would do it for Nug. Um, if this ever is a thing that happens and I plummet to my death, uh, just please tell my son that I always loved him. Well, absolutely. I will do that. Yes. <laughs> it's the least you can do. That's for sure. <laughs> oh my God. It's going to be a fun episode, y'all. This got very dark, <laughs> very fast. I'm, I'm very glad you reserved a spot on that list for not any of your brothers, just some other random person. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, he's he's kind of he's kind of future-proofing, right? He's yeah. leaving his options open. You know, you never know who he might meet in the future, who he likes more than Jackson and I. Absolutely accurate. I mean, it could be my own child at some point in the future. Yeah, there you go. You got, yeah, you, yeah, you got to leave a slot open for that. That's fair. I respect it. It could be his best friend and my boss, who is also currently playing this game. He wouldn't do game. it for Joseph. I wouldn't do it for Joseph. And Joseph would understand. <laughs> yeah, Joseph, Joseph would not even ask that of me. He would just like be falling and go, yeah, this is, I'm just accepting my fate. Matt's not going to save me. I will say that I, I promised my boss that I would give him a shout out on the pod. So I just had to slide that in there. It seemed like the best place to put. Well, here, put go ahead and give him a more explicit shout out than just that. Joseph, do, do, do Joseph, Joseph, you are fantastic. I'm glad that you got to the kingdom today and you couldn't wait until 
after work to play it, except for you had to because you're a good guy and you're a good worker and you waited until 6 p.m. to play the game that you waited all day to play. Darn ethical. Have a fun time. Really is the best. Okay, now let's actually talk about Zelda. Okay, Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, right? I actually, I think this is a good time for us to go back and do a retrospective on Breath of the Wild. Who wants to just, oh, yeah, who good. just who just wants to go over that game in its entirety again real quick here? Uh, yeah, so uh, let's just go through plot points. So I have all the plot recaps pulled up, and we're just going to read them off now. That's going to be the rest of the pod. That's yes. your whole hour. This will, uh, uh, let's, okay, credit where credit is due. That would be an hour and a half at least a pod <laughs> that's like 15 episodes and all those plot recaps were massive hella long yeah so they were some of my finest work though they they truly were okay getting serious here legend of zelda tears of the kingdom did of course release on friday may 12th which was uh coincidentally also jackson's birthday happy birthday jackson oh thank you thank you yeah so basically in the time since its release uh review embargo is up we've gotten our you know mainstream gaming media impressions on this game we know a whole lot more about what it is we're not going to talk about anything on this episode past the introductory area of tears of the kingdom so uh if you and and just a quick disclaimer if you haven't played anything yet if you're wanting to remain unspoiled on absolutely everything about this game then Maybe this is not the episode for you. Um, maybe or any of the next four. Yeah, maybe uh, go play some of Tears of the Kingdom and then come back. Uh, but regardless, we felt like the tutorial area was a pretty safe um, area of the game to talk about. I feel like most people who got it day one and have dived in, uh, <laughs> literally, um, ah. yeah, uh, you know, will have at least cleared up until that point. Um, and of course, what we're talking about is the Great Sky Island, which is this game's analog to the Great Plateau. So we'll be talking about that section of the game, uh, plot, mechanics, new abilities, all that stuff. E- anything that happens within that first chunk of time is completely on the table. Um, anyway, uh, so as I was saying, review embargoes are up, uh, and everything, and I think uh, one thing that we're kind of figuring out and granted, it is early days, and I don't want to be too hyperbolic about this, but it really seems that this game is poised to equal or surpass the critical reception of Breath of the Wild. I mean, I believe it's already surpassed Breath of the Wild. It is one of the few games I think I saw on and Twitter. You're, and you're just talking about, like, right right now, just talking purely in terms of Critical reception. critical reception. Correct. I think I saw on Twitter on maybe Saturday or Sunday that it currently holds the highest Metacritic score of all time. And that for is for a video game. Yes, and that is as of th- this is Tuesday the sixteenth. So, and I saw that a couple days ago. So I, I don't know if that's still true. I imagine it probably is. Um, yeah. But yeah, critical reception has it so highly rated that I don't think there's any doubt that it will remain above even Breath of the Wild. Which is an incredible thing to say, right? I think, um, I mean, it was not a given by any stretch of the imagination that this game would even uh, meet Breath of the Wild in in terms of quality, right? And in terms of like the extent to which people love it, right? I mean, Breath of the Wild for the longest time we've been talking about is um, one of those rare moments in gaming where the, the praise is almost universal. It is just unilaterally considered to be a masterpiece like of course there there's you know people who uh to them it is uh subjectively not their cup of tea right and those people exist for tears of the kingdom as well um but 
even those people, you know, would never tell you that Breath of the Wild is is a bad game or anything, anything short of a monumental achievement in gaming, right? Like what it represents is it's it's a watershed moment in video games. I think that's fair to say is Breath of the Wild. Yeah, and we talked a lot about this on the Rank and Recap episode as Breath of the Wild does for the new generation of Zelda games what Ocarina of Time did for the 3D generation of Zelda games. So I think that Tears of the Kingdom is just furthering that uh that legacy and has done and and according to almost everybody that I have seen personally on my own Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, all the way around everybody that I know or follow has said that Tears of the Kingdom takes everything Breath of the Wild did, dials it further up to 10 and then just like executes flawlessly and TIE Fighter. TIE Fighter. Obviously, we mentioned in the lead up to this game releasing just in our episodes where we were covering trailers and gameplay reveals and stuff that um, even though everything we were seeing looked great, the simple fact that we just didn't know so much about what this game was, was leading us to say, you know, obviously very excited, but by no means is are we treating this as like a shoe in for like a a perfect score or for being, you know, a top shelf 10 out of 10 hard to ever be surpassed by anything else Zelda experience, right? Like we had some, we had some skeptical feelings. Um, we had a little healthy cynicism Mm -hmm. and, uh, obviously we know quite a lot more now, but Jackson and and Dante, I'm going to pass this over to you guys' end of the table real quick. And I would like you both to tell me real fast, Jackson, we'll start with you. Did you ex- like were you expecting this game to drop with the amount of universal praise that it has received or did you have like a, a little area of your brain where you were just based on what you had seen in trailers and stuff not completely sold that that was going to be the case? I think I expected it to have a similar reception to Breath of the Wild and but since it would be a follow up it one I didn't think it would get as high of praise. People might have seen it as like, "Oh, Gatsby. Gatsby agrees. That they would have seen it as like, hey, this is Breath of the Wild 2. Like, we've seen this stuff before. It's not revolutionary like Breath of the Wild was, but it's still a great game, right? And so Breath of the Wild received such high scores partially due to its uh, ability to like completely change the landscape as we've been talking about. And my thought was, my thought was that uh, Tears of the Kingdom wouldn't get quite as high reviews because it wouldn't have had that level of innovation, uh, although it would still be great. And, you know, I think the way that you see w- uh, that I was wrong is as soon as you load into the Great Sky Island and you see how vast it is, especially compared, it feels so much bigger than the Great Plateau, uh, kind of tells you everything you need to know about what that game's going to be like just when you start out. Dante, how about you? Yeah, so I was uh, thinking about this recently, but like Breath of the Wild was initially just supposed to be a Wii U game. Um, you know, like I still remember the original presentations where they were showing off the map on the gamepad um, and showing off how cool it is. And it wasn't until the Switch was getting a, you know, released that they were like, oh, it's on both and it's going to be a release title. So I think just by its nature, if I was only on the Switch, it had to be better. Like there was this expectation that it had to be better than Breath of the Wild. Um, and I think it um, fully embraced what people liked about Breath of the Wild and took it to its like extreme end conclusion. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people 
it's gotten so much critical praise because it's just it's Breath of the Wild, but it's more of what people liked about Breath of the Wild. Um, yeah, and it, it's so funny because so often I think when I think about Breath of the Wild, it's so inextricably linked to the Switch as a platform and the early success of the Switch as a platform. Um, and it, it's it's tough to remember sometimes that Breath of the Wild sort of got the Twilight Princess treatment, right? Like uh, simultaneous launches on both old and new gen hardware GameCube to Wii with it originally having been a GameCube title, um, you know, I, I typically tend to think of Twilight Princess as a Wii game uh, because it was because it launched with it. Right. But uh, uh, yeah, that's that's, you know, that's not the the breadth and width of the story in the context of the development of that game. Um, Breath of the Wild, uh, you know, is a very is very similar uh, in that respect. And it's so interesting. Uh, it's one of the things that has always impressed me so much about the way that that game shipped and how it ended up was the fact that um, it was as amazing as it was knowing that it started its life as a Wii U game. But you're absolutely right. I think that there was a lot of expectation around, okay, this is a game that's being purpose developed for the Switch hardware. That being said, uh, I think one of the th- one of the things that we all felt like could be a major factor in kind of bringing down our overall enjoyment of this game or one of the things one of the lingering worries that we had was the fact that it does just share so much of its DNA with Breath of the Wild right um, engine of course I don't think anyone was really concerned about that Breath of the Wild's engine is great but uh, the map right the overworld like to what extent were we just getting kind of warmed over um reprises of stuff that we'd already had in Breath of the Wild. That was something that a lot of people were talking about and I know one of the topics of conversation that we that we kept coming back to over and over was to what extent is this just going to feel like Breath of the Wild downloadable content, right? And there, because you know the the earliest development of this game even started with that as the prompt, right? And then it quickly expanded past what they felt like they could support in a DLC, so boom, now we have a new game, which is great. But one of the things that I think is awesome is that I probably read 15 or 20 different reviews from major sites of Tears of the Kingdom, and I don't think I saw any of them mention that whole thought process in in any way, shape, or form. Nobody was talking about, oh, this game does some really cool things, but we can't really escape the familiarity. Yeah, none of those outlets were even were even mentioning that as something that was detracting from their play experience. Obviously, all of these reviews mention the fact that a large portion of this game is a, you know, a reprise of the Breath of the Wild overworld, but it's always been mentioned as far as I've seen in a very positive light, right? Um whereas like you know, coming from the perspective of this game does have enough new stuff to justify the overworld from Breath of the Wild's inclusion, and also that overworld does have enough changes to where it's interesting and fun to be here, to catch up with this world uh, several years on from the way that we saw it in Breath of the Wild. So um, that's really cool, and I'm really glad that things panned out that way. Jackson? Yeah, so talking about familiarity and that being one of the concerns, it took up until the sixth year of Breath of the Wild's release for us to stop seeing the way that people were innovating with Breath of the Wild, right? People found new things to do in that game for so long. And so the worry might have been if they didn't change it enough with the abilities specifically, maybe it would have, you know, not had as long of a life as Breath of the Wild seemed to have in the community. And 
<laughs> I think we can put those worries to rest, but it's just crazy. If Breath of the Wild had that long of a life after its release, mm-hmm. how long is this game going to go? Yeah. Well, and I was saying this when we were all at dinner together last night. Um, the interesting thing to me is that so many games, so many AAA game studios, like big ass video games, are still in a lot of ways iterating on the Breath of the Wild format, right? They're still trying to catch up to what Nintendo managed to do with Breath of the Wild because, like I said, Breath of the Wild was a revolutionary moment for video games. Um, And so what I think is so incredible about Tears of the Kingdom based on what I've played of it so far um, is the fact that Nintendo, in the midst of everybody else still trying to catch up to them on their last game, went and just kind of iterated and evolved that formula to frankly revolutionary and astounding new heights with tears of the kingdom um it's really an interesting trick and there are a few different things that go into that that i'm that i want to talk about later in some general impressions but before i do that let's go around the table real quick everyone uh tell me how much time you've logged with the game so far um i myself have probably gotten about eight and a half hours uh i I really had had planned on playing a lot more by this point i actually took uh last friday off work and uh um unfortunately one or two things cropped up and i didn't get to play any of it that day we had some some uh friends birthday parties and it was mother's day this weekend and you know there's just there was a lot going on but i've still managed to get in a, a good chunk of the game um and have been really enjoying it matt how about you yeah, I'm probably at about 12 hours. Um, I also had a similarly busy weekend, not as busy as yours, but I, I did log in about 12 hours. Um, so I'm a little bit ahead of you. Jackson. I've only gotten three and a half hours. I couldn't. Wow. I know. Well, because I, I didn't take work off Friday and then Friday night, birthday stuff. Saturday, uh, I was helping to clean uh, stuff outside with my dad all day. Uh, Sunday church, Mother's Day. Uh, last night a concert, and so like every day since the release, there's been something going on where I've had to do things other than other than play the game that I've been wanting so bad to play. I was gonna say, have, has this been actually like has the having the patience, uh, knowing that you're gonna have some time with it, but that time just not coming around, has that been difficult? Like, have you just been Jones and hard for this game? Yeah, especially because I don't know when I will have time to really sit down and play this game for a long period of time. So it, it's hard because like I'm trying to fit it in. But, you know, especially with a game at, of this size, a lot of things take a lot of time to get done. And so it, it's hard to be like sit down for 30 minutes because you feel like you're not going to get anything done. Now to the man whose answer I'm sure is going to blow the rest of us completely out of the water. Dante. I I think it's around 40 hours. Holy crap, dude. The I only watched the first two trailers of this game. And then as soon as I saw a release date for May 12th, I cut myself off from like every single Did that include did, did that include the gameplay reveals, the Yeah, that included the gameplay okay. reveals, the story reveals, all that stuff. Um and so I I didn't have I just had the information from those trailers and then when I played it, I just kept on finding new things that I liked. And I just didn't stop. <laughs> and I, I will say, too, that every single time that I picked it up, knowing that I only had like an hour or an hour and a half to play some 
play some game. Um, it was very tough to put it down. Like this game has got its hooks in me big time uh, in exactly the same way that Breath of the Wild did when it came out. Um, I, I'm absolutely in love with it so far and I'm, I'm really enjoying my time with it. So now that we know how much time everybody's spent with it, um, let's go ahead and get into talking about some more specific aspects of what happens in the early game of Tears of the Kingdom. Uh, before we get into abilities and mechanics and everything, I just want to go around the table real quick and talk about the plot the story beats that we're introduced to, because this is one of the things that was honestly the the biggest hook that this game had going for it from its first announcement trailer all the way up until release, even while everyone else is talking about things like, oh, are the new ability is going to be fun. Is the Breath of the Wild overworld going to be fine? Like, are we going to hate just having to go back there again? You know, in the midst of all that stuff, I think the thing that everybody was excited about was the small teases of story that we've been seeing, um, seeing some, you know, old characters, old enemies, uh, crop back up, you know, seeing some cool new moments for both Zelda and Link and, um, seeing some really neat stuff happening to the world of Hyrule. So let's go ahead and talk about the plot. Matt, I'm going to bounce it to you first. How are you feeling about the story of this game now that we kind of, now that we know at least the, the foundation for what's happening all the way through? And do you want to give us an impromptu plot recap? I mean, sure. So, like, obviously, the the biggest thing which this has been, <laughs> and now the Sacred Realms Rundown Part Two, which is the plot recap this week, as impromptu, impromptly delivered by me. Um, so, like, so far, uh, take it away, Matt. Thank you, Lyndon. Uh, we started out from the first trailers knowing that we were going to be exploring a darker part of Hyrule like obviously physically from it being beneath Hyrule Castle or in the chasms uh, seeing Ganondorf's mummy like all of those things going on and you know in the beginning it starts out I love how it starts out actually like just Link and Zelda walking down through these chasms underneath Hyrule finding the murals and talking about the imprisoning war all of Zelda's geeking out and being an archaeologist and like I love the character moments that you get between Zelda and Link there and the story beats that it implies so then moving down even further as we're following the the chasms down and down you see this stuff that looks kind of like malice but not really like malice like from the calamity and it's it's slightly different and as we move down the master sword starts lighting up like uh, Frodo's sword sting when there are orcs nearby and then and it's times like that my lad when you have to be extra careful so moving down all the way until we come to the chamber where Ganondorf's mummy body is with this ghostly hand holding it um and then immediately as soon as we come into the presence of uh, Ganondorf's mummy the hand falls off and Ganondorf just reanimates and malice energy or whatever his power is and it ends up being called gloom just absolutely envelops and destroys completely the master sword and warps link of all of his uh, vitality all the way down to three hearts and nearly kills him and then on top of that the mummy rises and speaks and talks about uh is that the sword that's supposed to seal the darkness how easily it is destroyed by my power um and then he knows who we are he knows zelda he knows that we must be the chosen hero to wield the sword and he mocks our lack of power 
Just one question about this real fast. We know that Matt Mercer, a famous video game voice actor, uh, is voicing Ganondorf in this game. I was a little unclear. I couldn't tell if Matt was voicing him in this section because it's kind of like a like the vocal delivery here is very it's a little bit more shrill. It's kind of skeletal sounding. Right. And it's definitely very different from some of the voice lines we've heard Ganondorf say in the trailers. Right. Um, And I was having a tough time telling if it was, if it was Matt still, or if it was a different voice actor, if they had just done some distortion or something. He does have a very wide range. I mean, there's a reason like he does the critical role podcast and he does a lot of voices for that because he is the dungeon master for it. So he, voices so he has a very very wide range um i can imagine it's him but um initially when um this is a little later but like when the arm starts talking i thought that was matt mercer so i was very confused i was like wait is ganondorf the arm as well as the mummy and are we getting like some like weird shenanigans going on and it's actually not they've they've come out and said who the voice actor is for the arm and the character associated with it. it's not matt mercer but um i, I agree the the voices did kind of sound a little samey at times but anyway i interrupted you i'm very sorry so as ganondorf uh rises to his full mummified height he then lets out a huge blast of power and raises hyrule castle into the sky and from our vantage point we don't see this but you know we pan out to see all of hyrule undergoing a great upheaval and just huge chunks of ground being ripped up into the sky huge chasms and fissures being open all over the kingdom and in this moment uh zelda falls into a chasm and before she fell she picked up a small gem-like stone that fell off of Ganondorf's forehead that glowed with a bright light and as she falls she blinks out of existence in this same flash of bright light and as Link is diving to catch her as she's falling into this bottomless abyss uh, she blinks out from uh, from his grip and Link seems to fall to his death until he is caught by the ghostly hand that was imprisoning Ganondorf and the ghostly hand whisks him away and we lose consciousness completely until we wake up an undetermined amount of time later uh, in a strange stone room. Uh, all of our equipment is gone except for the master sword is in the room with us. Uh, and our arm has been replaced by the ghostly arm that was holding Ganondorf. And it's in that moment that we notice the arm that has replaced our own. Uh, it begins to speak to us and talk to us about how our arm was beyond saving. And we almost were beyond saving as well, but that we were brought here and that Zelda has been talking to whoever this ghostly person is, uh, about us and that we need to uh, leave this uh, area and go and find Zelda uh, to begin a new journey. It comes to our attention uh, later that the donor of this arm is someone named Araru, uh, who is a Zonai. And the Zonai are those who created uh, all of the structures beneath Hyrule Castle. And as we were delving in with Zelda, all of the archaeological markers were of the mythical Zonai, who were a powerful species that preceded uh, Hylians and had a great kingdom that was governed with uh, 
technology even beyond that of the Sheikah, which we were very familiar with from last game. So as we exit this area, uh, once we pick up the mostly destroyed Master Sword, we leave the area and find ourselves in a floating island in the middle of the sky. And uh, that's kind of where we begin our journey. And I'll let everybody interject now while I gather some more thoughts. Yeah, I, I just want to say one thing real quick. I audibly gasped. Like I was, I was sitting in bed playing this game as it released. I started midnight on the 12th and I audibly gasped. And I'm surprised I didn't wake up my wife when Ganondorf name dropped Rauru because, yeah. because Rauru is of course a, a name of some, of some Zelda antiquity, right? Uh, best known as the Sage of Light in Ocarina of Time. Uh, but also Rauru was the name of a town in the adventure of Link as well. Um, and so that was, that was a really, really cool moment because it was a name that I was, it, it was a total surprise. Um, and it was so fun to see it there. I thought for a minute that Ganondorf was talking about Rauru uh, the Sage. So did I. Um, but it turns out that I, th- I think this is just another example of uh, these fun moments where the Zelda lore has echoes of itself, mm-hmm. right? That are, that kind of persist throughout the canon of games. And they're not necessarily directly connected. But um, again, it's the, the threads it's, that bind it all together. It's the legend of Zelda, right? It's a <clears throat> It's about these... Uh, it's about these disparate story beats that vaguely connect over long periods of time. Yeah, I mean, I did the same thing and I, I was playing at midnight release as well. I was in uh, my living room playing on the big screen TV. Um, my fiance was asleep in the next room and I, I did the same thing. I said, holy <laughs> As soon as like we walked out and you get the same thing happened in Breath of the Wild and I had the same reaction, but it, it's it being in the sky gave it a different depth of feeling for me specifically just because of how much I love Skyward Sword. Like it, it just called that back so um, purposefully, I think, and it just felt grandiose in, in a in a different kind of way, which I didn't think was going to be possible because it's the same basic like camera movement. It's the same style of swelling music. Obviously, this being the Tears of the Kingdom uh, swell instead of the Breath of the Wild. They're, they're similar, but different. So like they pulled it off to where it felt different enough, but still similarly grandiose. And that was just Nintendo magic. Do we think that if Link and Zelda had not gone into that room, that none of this would have happened, like a very Indiana Jones-ish moment? I actually don't think so. I think that the arm was losing power and that had they not gone down there, I don't think it would have fallen off when it did, but it would have fallen off eventually. Because the whole deal is that the, the reason they're doing this in the first place is because the gloom is seeping up to the Hyrule surface from below the castle. And so it's making people sick. So Raru is waiting for the hero to come as the perfect time to let go. Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly what, that's what I took away from it, is, is Raru sensed that the people to rectify the situation were present, so needed to kick things off. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that's a good way of interpreting that. Cool. All right. Um, so we we exit onto the Great Sky Island and begin our adventure, and as we start wandering around, we, we encounter, uh, do we encounter the ghost of Raru? First, or we don't we don't encounter him until we get to the te- the doors of the temple, right? Dante, do you remember when do we first meet the ghost of Rauru? So I actually replayed this uh, the whole thing today, um, and I, I just want to say quickly about the intro section. Um, sorry to go off on a tangent again, but um, uh, I just really love his intro section uh, where you're like going and exploring the depths of Zelda and getting all the lore for the game because most of the time in other Zelda games, that's just text. Like it's text with some 
cool images. Um, a little soundtrack. Yeah, you know, little, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Wind Waker one comes to mind. Yeah. Um, but um, but this one, you're like you're going down to caves. You're with Zelda. You can like talk with her a bunch and get all these different dialogues. Um, and you still have the fancy images, but it's like an actual like the focus this time is on Zelda giving you all this information. Um, and I really like that. Like once you're up in the the Great Sky Island, your very first uh, mission in the adventure log, it's find Zelda. Yeah. Um, and that's like the whole goal. Like the goal of Breath of the Wild is beat Ganon. This one finds Zelda. Yeah. 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 It's it's I like it a lot. Um, as to the hand thing, I think. Um, oh, I I think it's pretty soon after. Because basically what happens is you notice immediately that the hand has now become fused onto your own arm, right? Yeah. And I think Raru appears pretty much immediately. No, uh, it's, what? he doesn't. He appears at the door of the temple. Yeah. I'm remembering this now. Okay. Yeah. So so as we exit, and I'm sorry to cut you off, Dante, but no, if I don't go, I'm going to lose my train of thought. So as we exit, we start exploring around the Great Sky Island and we come across these mechanical creatures who talk to us. Some of them are friendly and some of them are not. And the friendly ones who talk to us tell us a little bit about the world that we find ourselves in. They give us tips and tricks and hints about uh, how to interact with the world, anything from uh, cooking to utilizing weapons or picking up uh, things off the ground that we can use for defense. And then we come across some of the non-friendly ones who attack us, but we come to find find out that they're attacking us not out of malice, but out of thinking that we're an intruder in their territory. So we make our way carefully around uh, the islands and we find our way to uh, the great temple in the center of the great sky island, which is called the temple of time. And as soon as we walk up to the door to open it, uh, we are blocked and the door uh, gives us a bright red, uh, no entry symbol. And behind us, a ghostly figure appears of Raru, the figure who's been talking to us through the arm. And he is a uh, great ghostly figure uh, who looks vaguely animal-like. And I'm trying to figure what kind of animal he looks like. It's kind of llama-ish with some cool, huge flowing hair. Like, he's got a mane, man. It's huge. It goes all the way down. It goes all the way to the ground. And he is, uh, I mean, he's very obviously a powerful and wise figure. And he talks to us uh, in person, much the way that Bosphoramus Hyrule did uh, on the Great Plateau. Yeah, he serves the exact same purpose as King Rome. Yeah. And, um... So we talk to him and he tells us that the arm should have allowed us to open the Temple of Time, but it seems that in the millennia since his arm held Ganon prisoner below, it has lost much of its power. So he then sets us on another quest to go and regain some of the power into our arm uh, by showing us to three shrines around the island that we have to get to and uh, to conquer. So we set off and do all this, and along the way, much like in Breath of the Wild, uh, we gain new abilities, that of uh, Master Hand, Fuse, and... Uh, that would be Ultra Hand. Oh. Master, <laughs> Master Hand is the... Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's the uh, Smash, Smash Bros. Smash, yeah. boss. So Ultra Hand, Fuse, and Ascend yes. are the ones we get first. Um, after conquering these three shrines and gaining these abilities, we return to the Temple of Time uh, and open its doors, only to find our way blocked uh, by another set of obstacles. And just as we lose hope, Zelda appears to us in sort of a vision and uh, doesn't say anything, but grants us an ability 
uh, called Reversal? Recall. 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 Thank you. Uh, Called Recall, which allows us to uh, reverse the motion of an object in time. So we use this to uh, open the water wheels to allow us to pass into further into the temple. Uh, we come to the end and find our way blocked again by another door, which bars our passage. And Raru comes again and says that this door is a test of your vitality and your strength of will. And in our weakened state, we're unable to pass it. So that he assigns us one more trial to go and to conquer, uh, to gain the last bit of strength that we need. So we head off into the frozen region of the Great Sky Island, uh, where the mountains are, uh, come back down with our four pieces of, what are they called? They're blessings of light, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. something with along our, those lines. With our four blessings of light, back into the Temple of Time, offer them to the goddess Hylia statue that we find there, uh, gain new a new heart piece, and open the door with our uh, newly increased vitality. We move into the overlooking area of the temple of time where we can see below us a great cloudscape Uh, at the far end is a stone anvil with a shining light above it but no sign of princess Zelda we approach and as we do the master sword begins to speak to us it begins to flash and it seems that it wants to be placed onto the stone anvil Uh, following our instincts and the will of the sword we place the sword within the bright glow of light and it is taken from our hands and we get a brief glimpse of Zelda and another place and time as she takes the master sword for herself to safeguard it and hopefully to repair it so that we can use it once more. We return back to our own time and find ourselves swordless, but Raru comes again and tells us that we must now embark on the great journey to find Zelda in our own proper time and place. And Zelda speaks to us out of the great magic that she has to tell us the same. And as she does, the dragon Farosh bursts up from through the clouds and opens the cloud barrier to see the entirety of Hyrule sprawled out beneath us. And our path is now set to re-enter our kingdom of Hyrule and find Princess Zelda again. Well, there you go. That is the impromptu <laughs> plot recap. I'm sure I got some things wrong and someone's probably going to tell me how wrong I was about some areas. But hey, that was all off the cuff. I hadn't had no preparation. Well done, as always, Matt. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> you got a little part of the Sacred Realms rundown. No, yeah, I just I sprung that on you out of nowhere and you did a really great job. Uh, uh, so obviously a lot of really fun story beats that happen here. Um, just from a plot standpoint, there's there's so much to dig into. Um, obviously, the character of Rauru is fascinating. The Zonai in general, the character design of the Zonai, and granted, Raru is the only one that we've seen, but incredible character design. The subtle differences in Zonai architecture, specifically versus Sheikah architecture, is one of the things that was really making me so interested in all the stuff happening here. Um, you you mentioned it just a minute ago, Matt, but I'm going to echo your point that the Great Sky Island. It it's it does this wonderful trick where even though it's such a similar moment to the to when you emerge from the Shrine of Resurrection onto the Great Plateau, very similar vibes, but it feels different um, in such a subtle way. And there's a lot of things that are kind of contributing to that, right? Like the color of the trees, you know, the style of the architecture, the fact that you're you know in the sky and you can see other islands scattered all over the place. Like it feels like a very complex area for one thing. One thing that I was noticing was that it was difficult to get an immediate, um, uh, an immediate impression of the scope and arrangement of this island, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's just, it's a more complex uh, geography. 
And I love the constructs. All the zone ice stuff is very much like a Legend of Zelda take on steampunk almost. It's really cool. I like it. It's uh it's it's advanced without looking advanced. It, it doesn't hit that like cyberpunk futuristic note. No. Yeah, I, I I agree with you about that for sure. To me, it feels like a steampunkified Mayan architecture. You know what it was really reminding me a lot of was, and and there were constant one thing after another in this early section of the game that were reminding me subtly of stuff that we see in Skyward Sword. Um, you know, the, the Zonai constructs feel very similar to the robots in the Sand Sea, right? And in the yeah. Linnaeus mining complex, the architecture within the Temple of Time feels very reminiscent of the, the time wheels, like the gears that make up the, uh, the time portal in Skyward Sword. Um, and it's, it's so interesting because it's one of those things where like Zelda is the kind of series that can just do this. And you can be thinking to yourself, is this a direct callback? Are we supposed to think that there's some kind of actual narrative connection? Or is it more of the thing that we were talking about earlier, where it's just this team likes to play with with um, themes of echoes of events and cultures and places from past games all the way up through the new ones? You know, we see that in older games in instances like where um where midna's crown you know the helm of twilight has got uh has got design callbacks to majora's mask in some ways right it's not that we're supposed to necessarily assume that the twily are related in any way to the cult that created majora's mask Mm -hmm. but you're also supposed to think well maybe maybe they are maybe there's a slight connection it's echoes of themes dante how about you how are you feeling about this early plot i i like there's a lot of questions um as to like you know what's going on uh it it leaves me enough of like where zelda to be like all right well i'm just gonna do what my arm tells me to do i'm gonna touch the random floating object in the temple because i just like touching things um i mean (laughs) (laughs) your hand likes to touch stuff look i could have worded it better all right but no it's it it is um I love that it's just like you and Raru just on this island. And I, I like that he's, he feels more present than, uh, the King from the first game. Cause his like spirits floating around and he's sitting on these little things. And, uh, if you talk to him at one point, uh, while he's watching a bunch of constructs, he's like, uh, these constructs are still active after all this time, but they don't really have a purpose anymore. It grieves me. And like, even you though, you only have Raru for like this prologue, Really, there's so much character to him that I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I do think it's very interesting. I still, I think it's interesting just how much this game doesn't even attempt at all to explain to you what the deal with the Sky Islands even is. Because like we we knew that these islands existed from the trailers, but for some reason I had it in my head that the way that this worked was that after you awoke the mummy underneath Hyrule Castle – a bunch of chunks of Hyrule landmass rose to the sky. And then that was what was going to create one, a bunch of the topographical changes in the, in the overworld below. Right. Um, but that, you know, that was going to be the gameplay reason for us having all these sky islands. Right. That does not appear to have been the case. Uh, Cause what we actually see during the cutscene where Hyrule castle itself is levitating, we see chunks and ruins of the Zonai islands falling from the sky. They didn't rise up from below. So, um, and, and that question goes unanswered 
Uh, and, and I think that that's really interesting. I, I'm sure it probably will at some point. I think it'll, you know, it'll be addressed in some way, shape or form. But just the, the mystery of what this is and what's happening is so fascinating because in a certain way, it feels to me like these islands are maybe even out of time mm-hmm. from uh, from the world that we came from. Uh, they feel much more advanced in a lot of ways. Certainly the the temple of time in the sky feels like even though it shares a name with the classic location um, on the Great Plateau, it's completely different. It's it's much more intricate. Um, it's a much more fantastical structure. Um, and so I just I have a lot of questions about, you, you know, how all of this came to be. You know, where did it come from? Um, can't wait to have those questions answered. Yeah. And now that you mention it, I, I am also kind of forming the same opinion of time hijinks being a factor here, because obviously when we pass the Master Sword back to Zelda, I don't know if she's in the past or in the future or just somewhere else, uh, alternate dimension style. Like uh, there's something going on there that we haven't been full that hasn't been fully explained yet. And just the presence of a functional temple of time instead of just the ruins of the temple of time that we find on the great plateau leads me to believe that there's definitely some time hijinks going on here. Absolutely. And can, can we just say, I love having just a little bit of confirmation that yes, fee is all right. Yeah, it, it makes my heart happy every time she does her little noise. And like it just I have such love for Fee in general. And I know that it's technically pronounced Fi, but I don't think any of us care. We're just going to go with Fee because it sounds better. I do not care. Yeah. So it's it's not a Navi Navi situation. Um, I will always I will now always correct my pronunciation of that. But Fee is is sticking around. But anyway, very glad to see that Fee is is OK. And um, at least I don't know if she's OK, but at least she's alive. So that, that's good. Considering the state of the sword it's not great yeah she looks like she's worse for wear yeah master sword has seen better days let me just say the 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 team who who made both breath of the wild and tears of the kingdom they just love junking up the master sword Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah they really do and it's so it's so interesting now the emotional connection i have to the master sword is so much stronger post skyward sword after we get to literally forge it from the goddess sword and so like now i care about the master sword almost like i care about a character instead of as just a weapon or a tool Mm. and i love that i think that's a really cool trick that nintendo was able to pull off and that they continue to leverage via the fee noise yeah Jackson and Dante, do either of y'all have anything else that you want to say about just strictly the plot as it's presented to us here before we move on and start talking about abilities and mechanics and stuff? I love Raru. I mean, it really hurts to watch him disappear into the wind because I wanted, and I know he liked the arm and and whatnot, but I wanted him to be our full game companion. Like like a Nobby. Yeah, exactly. I wanted him to be that because he is so... So cool. He has this just awesome presence about him and the way he talks is just, it's just awesome. And so seeing him float away was really actually very sad. He's like a very comforting, solidifying presence. Like Mm -hmm. whenever he talks to you at the door of the Temple of Time, it gave me a sense of like, somebody knows what's actually going on around here and it's this guy and I'm glad he's here. Zelda's Iroh. Ooh. Good one. Very good. Yeah, I, I mean, Raru is great. Um, his the theme that plays whenever he like finally leaves, it's it's 
small, but it it leaves that like pain in your heart. It's like, oh, I've only known you for two hours, but it feels like it's been a very long time. Um, and then going back to um, the the time thing that you were talking about with the Master Sword, when he does put it in that uh, light thing, the same sound effect from the recall ability plays. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So I, I think what we're supposed to infer from all of this is that in some way, the gem that Zelda picked up under the castle, which uh, tear shaped, by the way, uh, <laughs> might we have a reference to the title of the game? Who knows? <laughs> title drop. Title drop. Anyway, um, I, I believe that what's kind of happening here is that Zelda herself was uh, imbued with the power of recall by that gem in some way and is passing on a fragment of that power to us because that's literally what happens when we see, when we have the vision where we see her right where we kind of like we kind of clasp hands and that power kind of flows into the arm so yes i, I definitely think time shenanigans are afoot yeah like raru literally explains that it's like zelda's will um like her the vision of her there is just her like he he doesn't actually know what's going on. He says it, like maybe it's because she has such a strong will that she's present like this. Um, but it is cool that like she gives you the recall power mm-hmm. from wherever she is. And I do think it's fascinating. We get a lot of dialogue from Rauru saying little things like, "Oh, you're exactly like Zelda always described" and whatnot. And so it's it's definitely setting up a situation where it seems that. Zelda and Rauru have a lot more experience together as characters than they should have just given the amount of time that's passed since the beginning of the game. Yeah, which is very interesting. And and actually, as we're talking about this, I'm going to theory craft something here. I, I'm wondering if Zelda has more or less gone back in time to be the 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 because she talks about under the under Hyrule Castle that it was the legends say that the Zonai partnered with ancient Hylians to found the kingdom of Hyrule. Mm. I'm wondering if our Zelda has gone back in time to become that and that she is projecting her will through time with the power of the tear that she took combined with the power of the Triforce that she has within her and is like doing some crazy time hijinks. Um, and that that makes me a little concerned for our fate with her. I mean, it could very well be a Skyward Sword thing where she goes back in time and, you know, does her what she needs to do back in time. And then we pull her back into the present or future or however you want to call it. Um, man, temporal paradoxes are not my favorite. <laughs> temporal dynamics are complex. That is uh, that is for sure. Um, I do want to say, too, just from a plot standpoint, we so uh, when we're under the castle and Zelda's looking at the murals on the wall, she does specifically mention that she has heard stories about something that she refers to as the imprisoning war. She's heard about a character called the Demon King from ancient Hylian history, and I what this is really doing for me right now is casting some doubt. I mean, I know in the Breath of the Wild season, we came down pretty firmly on the side of this is the child timeline, right? Right. Like the, the dialogue had mentioned Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword and Ocarina of Time stuff. Um, obviously, Skyward and Ocarina of Time share all timelines together, uh, but Twilight Princess is exclusively child timeline. So we were just thinking child timeline stuff. But the imprisoning war is specifically – uh, is specifically mentioned in the downfall timeline history of Hyrule um, and I don't think is a part of the lore of any of the other timelines because as I understand it, the imprisoning war is what took place in the downfall timeline after – yet yeah, to seal Ganondorf away after he successfully stole the Triforce 
from the sacred realm and, you know, killed the hero of time. Yeah. And also a- another interesting piece here is that if Ganondorf has been imprisoned under Hyrule Castle and, and you can find something later in the game that talks about how Hyrule Castle was placed on top of Ganondorf to increase the ceiling magic that held him there. So like... Wait, that does happen later in the game or you're theorizing? No, I, I, that, that does happen. Like it's it's a it's a plaque you can find in in some ca- in some caverns. And it that's it's so easy to miss. That's why I'm not shy about saying it because it's not like a plot point. But a, you can find a plaque in some caverns that says Hyrule Castle was placed where it was on top of the chamber where the Demon King was imprisoned to strengthen the sealing magic that holds him. Mm. So um it's very interesting because that is not what happens in Twilight Princess. You kill Ganondorf like dead ski dead. And until Breath of the Wild, there was no game in the child timeline past that. So it's I think it's still theoretically possible that we would be in the child timeline and Ganondorf may well, have been resurrected at some point. And the imprisoning war could just be referring to the armed conflict that did take Well, no, because in the there was no, no armed there was no armed conflict in the child in the child timeline. Link goes back in time and warns everybody about Ganondorf before he has a chance to do anything. Right. And then he's he's apprehended by the sages and that whole thing happens. So anyway, lots of questions still to answer. I don't think we're, you know, obviously it's fun I'm to th- answer this. Episode. Yeah, it's fun to theorize about it right now. Very curious to see where this game goes from here. But Dante, you mentioned um, the music that plays when Rauru floats off into the wind. I think that's a pretty good segue into one of the one of the big areas that this game really had to do some heavy lifting in order to um, really distance itself from Breath of the Wild. Um, I think one of the things people were noticing from early gameplay videos was like, oh, some of these musical themes are the same, right? Um, How do we feel about the music that we've seen so far? And I'm going to bounce it to you first, Dante. I mean, yeah, it's playing through this area. The cold theme is the same. Like you get to the cold area and it does the like the... I don't even remember what instrument it is, but it's 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 that like bird. It's like a chime sounding. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's cold. Better get your heat resistant peppers in your mouth. Uh, um, or the pants. You find the pants later, which have been uh, they're great because they're also higher armor. But um, uh, but yeah, no, it's what he's asking for whiskey. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The pants have higher armor. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I I think it's fine that some of the musical choices are the same. I mean, some parts of the map are the same, so I think it's only natural that some parts of the soundtrack are going to be the same, um, especially when you have like aspects that are the same from the previous game, like the weather stuff is the same. Uh, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Dante, that the similarities are not necessarily a bad thing, and I actually really appreciate that they're keeping some of the you know a large part of the spirit of breath of the wild because this is one of the only true sequels that exists and i I appreciate that they're keeping the feeling there but i think they're also doing enough different to uh set it apart and i think they're doing that in, in such a cool way that is very hard to do and nintendo seems to just do crazy successfully mm-hmm. jackson how about you what do you how are you feeling about the music in the game so far it's really calming 
actually. Um, for, for for the overworld being as messed up as it is, as you can see, the music is so calming. It's so reassuring and it just really helps you, you know, relax and just take in how beautiful this space is and and how wonderfully designed this game is. And I and I like it for that a lot. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the music evolves when you get into more serious situations. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, similar to what everyone else is saying, the stuff that is reused, I think, is done in good and um, purposeful ways. So I don't mind it. There's plenty that's new here. I would say that so in the section we're talking about, for sure, the great Sky Island, there's a lot of new music. But even, you know, playing past that, once you get, you know, down off the islands and you get into the rest of the game, um, the, I mean, there's so much more that's new here than than what is reused. And some of it is just like, uh, you know, new takes on old themes, but it is still new music. Speaking about the great Sky Island specifically, and even the music that leads up to, um, you know, the the first encounter with the Ganondorf mummy, right? That music is very different from anything we got in Breath of the Wild. It's very creepy sounding. It's got some of these interesting Zonai voices kind of scattered in yeah. to the music that we we the, kind of... robotic... Yeah. And so the music is very unsettling in that part. But once you get up to the Great Sky Island, the theme that like the overworld theme of the Sky Island is it's beautiful. It is relaxing. It has a feeling of like antiquity to it, um, which is serene in a very different way from what we got in Breath of the Wild, which also I, I would say that's also a very serene soundtrack right but this feels more ancient more purposefully ancient um my my favorite track that i actually came across so far is the one that plays at the temple of time on the great sky island it's got like some it's got some very interesting low strings um accompanied with low kind of like bassoon maybe sounding woodwinds Mm -hmm. um and it's a very beautiful soundtrack um I was very, very impressed by all the all the music work that was happening here, and I, I can't wait until the soundtrack is actually released so you can listen to all of it. Yeah, and this, I think the soundtrack of Breath of the Wild was one of its strong points, even though a lot of people didn't necessarily uh, agree with it because it agree with that take because it didn't stick to a traditional Zelda soundtrack style. But I love the atmospheric route that Nintendo is taking with these soundtracks and it, and it fits so much better into this type of game, which is so massive and so open world. Like, look, you're spending like potentially hundreds of hours just in the overworld, whether you be in the islands and the, in the caverns or in Hyrule general. And look, it, as much as we all like the Hyrule theme from Ocarina of time, it would get really old after, you know, 50 hours listening to that almost nonstop. So I, I think that they did the right thing by moving to a more atmospheric style of soundtrack in breath of the wild and continuing that here. And I agree, Lyndon, I think it, it does go to a, a very different tone um, than we even had in breath of the wild, but it's subtle and you have to, if you're not paying attention to it, you still feel it. You maybe don't, can't put a finger on what it is that you're feeling, but when you sit and you sit with it for a second and you kind of analyze it and the way that we do for the pod, it's, it's obvious how the, it's obvious how the differences influence the tone of the game. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things that, so the recipe for success here, one of the things that makes modern day open world Zelda work so well is that they've, they've got three pillars for success that all combine together to make a distinctive experience. And those three pillars, in my opinion, are 
art and visual aesthetic, sound aesthetic, and systems and mechanics complexity. Those three things come together and they create this awesome stew of of perfection, basically, um, that that lead to such a distinctive experience. Like, I mean, open world games with multiple objectives and places to go and, you know, I mean – Everyone's doing that these days, right? Like you've got your Assassin's Creed Odysseys, you know, your God of War Ragnaroks. You've got, you know, this is this is a thing that lots of different companies are doing. But one of the reasons that we started reviewing the Zelda series specifically is because our our founding thesis here was that the Zelda series is exceptional. It's it's distinctive in the canon of video games as a whole. Um, It manages to be utterly confident at all times. And this game does the exact same thing. There's nothing about any of this that feels generic. Yeah, it's it's always groundbreaking and it always dials up those themes that, you know, maybe some other games have started, but it takes them in a very Nintendo way. And I think a lot of this started with the Elder Scrolls, where they had the very atmospheric kind of soundtracks based on where you were. And I'm thinking more specifically about my own experience with Skyrim and how some of the different regions had different uh, themes that played. Uh, night time was always different. It was different when it rained. And all of those things are true in Breath of the Wild and now Tears of the Kingdom as well. And it's just so, it contributes to a sense of place in a way that is hard to replicate without an absolutely on-point music score. Yeah. So uh, we're kind of, we've got a good segue going here into uh, mechanics and the new abilities. So I definitely want to talk about those. Here's a fun thing that I'm realizing, y'all. We have four new abilities and we have four people currently at this table talking about this game. So here's what I want to do. I want to go around the table and I want each of us to take an ability and to talk about what it does and also first impressions about how it's executed and and the kinds of uh, shenanigans that you can get up to with them. Jackson, I'm going to throw it to you first, and I would love for you to talk to us about Fuse. Well, Fuse is basically allowing you to take objects and fuse them together to create a whole different object, right? Talk about uh, a sword or a stick and a rock and you fuse it together and you have a stone hammer and that allows you to break into caves where you see crumbled rocks that allow you to break them easily. Uh, It not only allows you to, to break rocks for caves, but it also allows you to have a heavier attack and more durability. So uh, once you get into the game further, you know, the op, opportunities with fuse are endless uh one of the things that you can see in a trailer is you put a keys eye on an arrow and it becomes a tracking arrow uh so there's so many awesome opportunities with fuse that i think is really intriguing and fun and allows you to kind of play the game in your own way that hasn't really been present in zelda quite as often uh as you might think and and this presents a whole new way of being able to to approach every situation differently yeah, one of the things that I really appreciate about Fuse is how much depth it adds to the inventory situation of this game. In Breath of the Wild, you know, there were a lot of different types of weapons that you could pick up for sure. But by the time that you were in that game for 100 plus hours, you know, um, some of the novelty had started to wear off and some of the variety 
uh, was really kind of it, like it seemed like you got to the end of the possible variety of inventory in that game, right? Like, yes, Royal Guard Claymores are cool and they're great and they're super powerful, you know, but at a certain point, you've just found a ton of them, you know, and and that's all that there is to it. You're kind of at the end of what the game had to give you. What Fuse really allows is for so many more iterations and combinations of weapon types. Um, and that's not even, you know, taking into account the different mechanical things that you can accomplish with fuse, right? Like I've seen videos of people who figured out that you can fuse, let's say a, uh, like a wheel to your shield, right? And then you can use it as like a skateboard basically to surf on, on rails. Well, I saw this one. You can, you can fuse a rocket to your shield and use it like a jetpack to jetpack away from situations. Sorry, what? Yeah. Yeah, there there's rocket jumping in this game. What? Yeah. Oh, I can be a Mandalorian? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Basically. Oh, that's so cool. But even in like uh, so I don't think we actually come across any rockets on the Great Sky Island, but you know, we come across mine carts, we come across flamethrowers, right? That you can fuse to the front of a shield. You can hold the shield out in front of you and it just spits flame at yeah, something. Yeah, airplanes. So airplanes you have airplanes too yeah yeah so cool yeah yeah i i love it the first time you get the the flame breath shields when you're fighting a like like um yeah no, i didn't get that i got my first flame shield from a captain really yeah yeah i the like likes only ever gave me kind of crappy stuff well no it's it's sitting like right next to the like second like like so it's like yeah, oh, you can yeah, either you defeat it with bombs or I you can did, use the flame thing. i did get that one you're right i got a flame club from a captain that's what that's what i got yeah and so, but I mean, talking about that depth, right? It's it's not even it like it goes even further past. I can fuse a rock to this sword, and then it gains more damage and more durability. You can do stuff with like scavenged enemy parts, with minerals, with all kinds of stuff. Uh, for instance, you find a lot of amber in this game, and anytime you feel like you need to add a little extra juice to one of your weapons, you can fuse the amber with that sword, and your sword gains an amber blade, which ups its attack power and its durability. Um, you know, uh, construct parts, the horns that come off of constructs when you beat them, those can be fused to sword hilts or to spears or whatever, and then all of a sudden you you have basically a Zonai sword that you're using. It, it's really an incredible thing. Um, I like it a lot. Jackson, I, I think you're trying to. Well, it, like Amber got me on a track like rubies. You find a few rubies up here and rubies attached to arrows kind of turn them into bomb arrows. When, when they land on someone or something, they turn into a massive fiery explosion. Yeah. And it's so interesting because there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool interactions like that, that are very useful. Some are not useful at all, right? Like I, I slapped a stake on the end of an arrow and shot it at somebody and it looked, you know, nasty and meaty and it didn't do anything special, but yeah, rubies create, like you're saying, an ultra bomb explosion. You can find fire fruit, that I love fire fruit. Yeah, that basically turn your arrows into regular fire arrows. Um, chew jelly, chew jelly is so one of useful. my is one of my favorite things in this game. Like in Breath of the Wild, uh, chew jelly was something that I never really collected because um, even though yes, you could infuse it with like thunder, ice, or fire energy in Breath of the Wild, and it was possible to like drop it on the ground and shoot it with arrows and use it as traps. It it, it kind of took a little bit of setup to make that happen. But in this game, all you all you have to do is fuse it to the end of one of your arrows, and then it becomes an ice arrow or a fire arrow or whatever. And there's so many things in this game that are like that. I found even more once I got to the surface. Um, and it's one of those things where 
I just can't wait to see, like once I've gotten to the end of this game and beaten it and whatnot, I don't want to spoil anything for myself, but I can't wait to see what, um, I can't wait to see a full list of what all the interactions are and what, what all does what, you know, because it seems like that list is very, very long. So I didn't know you could infuse gems into your blades and it would make them different. I totally just booted up my switch and infused an amber artifact onto a soldier sword that I had. And this looks so cool. Yeah, I am just freaking here for this, man. This is awesome. Yes. And here's here's one thing that I really want to tackle about Fuse as an ability, Matt. One of your main issues with Breath of the Wild was the weapon degradation system, which does very much still exist in Tears of the Kingdom. However, Fuse is kind of, in addition to being a puzzle-solving tool that does some neat stuff, um, seems to be kind of a direct response to player feedback of like, you know, even if you like weapon degradation, it sometimes feels like your stuff is breaking too soon or too quickly um, and you don't get as much life out of it as you would really want to. Do you feel like Fuse and the extra longevity that it gives to your weapons and the extra variety it gives to your weapons, do you feel like that's covering some of the ground towards making you like this system more? Not not really. And and I'll say that it's it's <laughs> – it would be too easy if Matt all of a sudden liked weapon degradation. That's true. So, like, weapons still break, right? Which I, I get to a certain extent. I do appreciate the versatility it gives, where I'm not having to constantly keep in my inventory a sledgehammer so that I can break rocks. And, like, I think that that is a huge plus. And I actually now have a use for all the rusty claymores that I find all over the place. Mm -hmm. Then that is the number one thing that I use them for, is I just throw a boulder on it and start breaking stuff so that is true it looks funky which uh, uh, like aesthetics are it's a thing and i know that that's a probably like a minor gripe but it is definitely a thing like i, I have a boulder attached to the end of a sword it's no longer really a sword and i don't no longer have that attachment that i might otherwise have i will say though the ability to do what i literally just did and take a normal traveler's sword and throw a captain's horn on it. And you now have a captain's horn sword is really cool. And now I have the ability to do that more or less whenever I want. And I think that's very good. And so far in my experience in the 12 ish hours that I've played weapon drops seem to be way more frequent. So I'm not like, struggling to find weapons and having to use tree branches and with the ability to fuse things i can now turn those weapons that i pick up into the thing that i actually want to have i am interested to see if i were to get like a royal broadsword that i love and want to keep if there's any way that i can fuse and unfuse to like restore durability or something like that to where i can keep that particular item in my inventory the way it is without it breaking in a single engagement mm. and i don't know i don't know if that's true or not and nobody tell me because i don't want it spoiled for me if that is a thing but i i think that is the only thing that i ever really wanted i understand that weapon degradation is necessary for the game that tears of the kingdom and breath of the wild is i understand that mm. and I'm, I just always wanted a way to combat that, even if it cost me rupees or resources or something. And, you know, if that is what is if, if that is something Tears of the Kingdom has added, then I will be happy. 
Yeah. One thing that I really love about this system is that it's dramatically cutting down on the number of item pickups that I would consider to be throwaway. Mm -hmm. Right. In Breath of the Wild, I was picking up a lot of stuff that, you know, while, yes, I would still go grab it for collection purposes, you know, and knowing that it might be useful in like recipes or something, um, still was picking up a lot of items that you know, I wasn't excited to be finding them like monster horns specifically. I see on your screen, you've got like a monster horn, yeah. right? Yeah. I was never really excited for those because the only thing they were really good for was again, making potions or selling to Kilton, right? Yes. And we have now got uses for all of these things. You know, they, they, prov they provide a tangible benefit to the moment to moment, uh, gameplay and economy of this game and i really really freaking love that even gemstones i mean gemstones were fun to find in breath of the wild just because you could sell them for tons of money now i've got this crazy thing going on where i'm like so do i want to keep it so i can do that am i saving up for something or is this a good time for me to slap a topaz on the end of my arrow right i mean um i love having to make that decision like that is such a fun gameplay decision to be to be faced with totally agree does anyone else have anything they want to say about Fuse before you move uh, on? Yeah, I, I love Fuse. I always have a bonk stick in my inventory, which is just <laughs> stone on sword. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Like, whenever you're in a cave, you see a piece of ore, like, ah, oh, bonk stick time, and then you just whack away. My favorite part about the bonk stick is that you can throw it. So it looks really goofy uh, throwing it, <laughs> but, like, whenever you need to clear rocks high up and you're, like, way too close for a bomb, you just got to throw it, and it works um no i love fuse uh i love that it very much encourages you to go out and fight monsters um because then you have all these different monster parts and uh all these things to work with i love that you can fuse weapons to other weapons mm -hmm. um and sometimes uh, most of the time the result is really goofy um like you can fuse two long swords together and it like extends so far off your back i picked up something that was a long stick with a rusty halberd attached to it and you basically have like a triple length spear and it looks <laughs> ridiculous oh, i i attached a spear to a boomerang and it still functioned as a boomerang whoa, whoa. yeah <laughs> So that's amazing. that's amazing. So you know how in Dark Souls you can kind of create your character to look a certain way, like tall or short or whatever. Uh, it, yes, Dark Souls, a game that I have played. Well, it's really funny because whenever you make your character really short and you have really big weapons, it looks really funky. Yeah. And it's just like that, except for you don't have the option to be bigger Link. Because so Link is very small. <laughs> he is very small. I will say I'm keeping a running list in my head of combinations that will yield me a cool looking weapon. Like I so basically what I'm what I'm not doing at all now is just randomly fusing like rocks to any of my stuff, you know, because the, the thing that I really hate. And again, this is just an aesthetic thing. I hate walking around looking like a badass, except, yes, I've got like a stick with a giant rock on the end of it. And it's just hanging on my back. Right. Yeah. So what I'm definitely keeping track of is like, OK, what can I fuse together to make something that looks like a weapon of war? So my recommendation is any captain's horn that you get, put it on any sword and it looks bad ass. Yes. Yeah. So um, there are like, whenever you get like a Zonai hilt or something like that, if you attach a, a Zonai horn to it as well, it gets like extra benefits. Oh, that's cool. Like you have. Yeah. If you attach to a shield or a sword, you get more power from the uh, the horn. That's really cool. 
Cool. I have one last thing to say before we move on to Ultra Hand. Um, and it's not even about Fuse, but talking about like dress up and looking ridiculous and things like that. Every time that you get like a crazy armor set uh, as Link, I just think about when season one of Avatar, when Aang puts on that crazy dragon armor. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, that's just what I think about because it's just like this tiny man in this ridiculous armor set. Good callback. It's anime as hell. All right, let's move on to Ultra Hand. And Matt, I'm going to pass that one to you. So uh, Ultra Hand is the most versatile and unique ability that I think has ever been in a game that is not like Minecraft. Like this feels like Nintendo looked at Minecraft and said, I love Minecraft. Let's put it in a Zelda game. And then like you can do that. And like the things people do have have already done in the four days since Tears of the Kingdom has come out, I've seen people create functional water wheels i've seen people create um like uh, a jousting uh robot that moved forward while it, there was a gear that was pushing a spear out forward and they just like sicked it on a stone talus and it was just going boom boom and just like pushed it off a cliff people have been making lots of dicks out there there are a ton of dicks i saw someone uh <laughs> kill a uh hinox with three stone uh, fallacies that had uh, the the Zonai bombs attached to the front and a and a fan on the back, and they would hit the fan, and the phallus would just go and impact the Hinox, do a ton of damage, and then explode and do more damage. Feel free to cut this, but are you saying you can throw dildos at people in this game? Yes, that is exactly what people are doing. Explosive dildos, like not just regular dildos, explosive dildos, and it is insane and like that's just the goofy versions right like i've seen people build basically like um uh jaegers from pacific rim like i've seen people go into battle with uh, a huge construct that looks more or less like a jaeger that has like flamethrower arms and uh that is nuts man and the the creativity of people in general is just absolutely coming out full force because of ultra hand and it's amazing and it's gonna give players an infinite amount of ways to do everything in this game so give us a quick rundown on what ultra hand does i know it's a long list oh sure sure so ultra hand basically allows you to take anything in the overworld that you can interact with so if it's a stick if it's a rock if it's a zonai device if it's a board if it is a log you can take it attach it to anything and build something the most common use is like a raft to go over water so you don't have to waste your stamina swimming five feet and then drown like there is you can do anything with anything basically unless it's rooted to the ground and or an enemy like a living thing yeah like you can't pick up a bokoblin and throw it around but um all of it Basically, outside of that, you can do anything you want, and it is, it's wild. It is um, hugely useful. I'm waiting on someone to make a Megazord, because that's like next thing, right? I think we're probably not, I'm sure someone has actually already done that. I'm, it's coming. Like, I, it, he's not joking, y'all. It's no, going to happen. You can, I mean, all you would have to do is find some sort of dragon-looking thing that you can attach to the top of something, and you have a Megazord. Like, people have been using this to create vertical takeoff attack planes. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Are we not going to talk about the Korok torture? 
that people have been making. We were going to talk about that later. Well, uh, I mean, that's, I mean. We have to give it an honorable mention sure, later. Sure, sure. Well, I was going to do that in the bloopy trailer. Oh, okay, okay, uh, okay. That sounds good. That sounds good. Um, no, so Ultra Hand to me, it's so fantastic because what it basically is doing is uh, making it impossible for me to ever go back and use Magnesis ever again. For sure. Because all Ultra Hand is, is Magnesis for everything. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not and, limited to, it's not limited to metallic objects. Yeah. And like, and that's putting t- completely to one side, the attach mechanic where you can just build things with it, but just, just being able to pick anything up with it makes it such a, a versatile tool. Ultra hand is definitely the bread and butter of the ability suite in this game. Um, everything else is great. Ascend fuse recall. They all have lots of uses they're very very useful for a wide variety of things but ultra hand is definitely uh appropriately i think given that you know the zoni arm is like kind of one of the main images of this game right ultra hand is kind of your bread and butter ability and um it's tons of fun i think it's it's spectacular in that it feels revolutionary um, it feels like a mechanic that no other game is really doing. Of course, like you use Minecraft as an example, and that's an apt example. But holy, yeah, I'm about to catch the star. Did that just like happen yeah. randomly oh, while you were following? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. love it. That's that's yeah. one of my favorite things to do. Okay, so weird aside, I am uh, actively messing around with Fuse and decided to jump off of a sky island, and a star fragment fell right next to me, and I grabbed it, and that was one of the coolest things that's happened. In like this game. it's it's literally Matt free falling, and then a star fragment is shooting out of the sky with him while yeah, he's you falling. Yeah, so you could you cool. could like go around the the, uh, the trail; it's falling down, and then you just catch it in midair. That was, it's so that was fun! Amazing. Oh my god so cool hot damn man that was cool okay anyway that was a that was a small <laughs> aside um but anyway yeah so i i think it's very impressive um it, it should be something that is broken it should be it, it's it's another example of a way and breath of the wild did this all the time there were things in breath of the wild where i would look at it and the inner like the interactions of mechanics and say it's incredible that this like the versatility that this has should have more loopholes there should be less polish around this right but there's not it's impeccably polished it works exactly the way that nintendo intended it to work and it works that way every single time and ultra hand is the exact same way plus another hundred percent like it's just it's 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 wild it is absolutely wild and honestly the fact that it took us six years to get this game i wouldn't be surprised if most of that time was just spent making it so that ultra hand as an ability was as polished as it is that had to have required so much intensive thought and effort. Well, that, and honestly, ascend is, is also so potentially game breaking that the fact that we have ascend in the way that it is, where it's so useful without like allowing you to circumvent the entirety of the game. This is insane. This sounds like a very, very good time for me to bounce it over to Dante to talk about ascend. Oh boy. Uh, so ascend, um, it's probably the simplest ability in concept. You just go up through anything that is above you um, within a height limit. Um, I do like that the, the shrine where you use ascend, the third puzzle is like you can't like get up to the top platform immediately. You have to go onto this floating platform first and then the top one. So I do like how it teaches you there's a height limit like immediately, but you can use it to like go up uh, a lot of different objects as long as it's like close enough to the ground. Um, if there's like a spire of an island you want to get to, 
uh, that's like really high up. You just go in and you swim up, which is probably my favorite bit about it, is that you like swim through everything. Solid rock. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's incredibly useful. Um, if you're like in a cave, don't want to like navigate all the way back out, just ascend up. Um, it's 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 such a simple thing, but it's so versatile in its use, like every ability in this game. And it's so interesting to me because we don't so far have like a Ravio's Gale equivalent in this game, right? Because in Breath of the Wild, the main that was kind of the main traversal tool. Like whenever you want to get out of a tough spot vertically, Ravio's Gale is there for Ravio you. Ravio is not the right. Eh. Rivali. <laughs> it's like we've been playing some A Link Between Worlds recently. Yes, Rivali is Gale. Thank you. Um, so what this is kind of doing, it's obviously not useful in the same way exactly, but it can help solve similar problems. Well, it doesn't matter because you have rockets on shields now. Well, <laughs> if you if you can find them, and also they're like one-time use. Or they're not one-time use, but like you, I mean, you, once you fuse it to a shield, you can't put it back in a capsule, right? So, um, anyway, so I, no, I do think ascend is a really awesome tool. I am still definitely trying to get a handle on what that height limit actually is because I've come across a few, uh, I've come across a few places where I was sure that I was going to be able to use it to shoot out of something. And it like the, the height limit was just a little bit above what ascend was actually going to allow me to do. So I would say of all the four new abilities, ascend is the one that I'm still kind of trying to get a handle on just in terms of its limitations. Yeah, it, it is hard to visualize the height limit, especially when you are sort of out in the open world and you, there's like a lot of bunch of craggly rocks and you can't tell like, okay, can I go through this or that? Um, some places extremely obvious where it is, they'll just be like a flat bit above you. It's like, Oh, I can just swim through that. That's no problem. Um, but it's, I found a lot of use for it. Just it, it, it's good for getting out of caves. That is like, it's a time saver. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, so I, I like Ascend. I, I think it's really cool. The only problem I have with Ascend is that it's a bit inconsistent with its animation and time to get through things. Like, I remember on Great Sky Island, I was going through something that was maybe a meter or two meters thick. Like, it was not that big. And it took Link, like, a good three or five seconds to swim through it. When other things that are much thicker, he didn't have that amount of time. And so I found it when, when you use ascend often, it can get a little bit like, now I've got to wait to get through this thing. Okay. And now we're through it, you know, which really small niggle, but it's just something that I had picked up and noticed. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've had that same experience. It's not just you. So cool. Um, all right. Does anybody else have anything they want to say about ascend before we move on? It's so ascend, I think is probably, it's the most one note ability of any of these. It does one specific thing. It's very useful, but you know, the potential for like iteration on that main mechanic is not quite as high as it is on everything else. So I guess that means it's my turn. I'm going to talk about the recall ability and what recall allows you to do is to rewind the course of an object through time. Um, you can 
you know, pause and restart that mechanic anytime you want. Uh, but so, for instance, one thing that you can do is if an object is rolling towards you, a boulder or something, you can hit recall on it and you can send it back up along the trajectory that it came down in the first place. And what's what's notable about this is that the world around you is not frozen. It's just that one item is moving backward in time. So if there's like enemies running at you, they're going to continue running at you, you know, but that item is moving backwards along a path of time. So, you know, in this one specific instance, let's say a boulder is rolling down at you, you can hit it with recall. And if those enemies that are rushing towards you are in the path of the boulder, then it goes back up towards them and will do damage to them. So that's useful. Um, what is mostly used for, at least on Great Sky Island, is just uh, traversal, right? There will be moving bits of scenery that are moving in one direction, like let's say it's moving clockwise and you need to hop on the platform and make it go counterclockwise so you can get up to another level. You can hit it with recall and then it will spin around the opposite direction, taking you up where you need to go. Uh, the more advanced version of this which is really wild to me is using recall in combination with ultra hand. You can do some incredible things. Like let's say that there's a platform that's high above you that you can't get to, but you have a wooden board that's laying on the ground next to you. If you pick that board up and just move it up to the level that you want to get to and then let it drop. If you stand on that board and hit it with recall, then it will move back up to that level that it was at before. And you can just like walk onto wherever you wanted to go um it's such a wildly versatile tool and it, it it makes me wonder how this is even possible because basically what it means is that every item in the game that has that is able to be picked up with ultra hand the game is somehow maintaining a memory of everywhere the item has been for a period of time mm-hmm. um that has got to be such a massive technical challenge it's it's mind-blowing that it can keep track of things with that level of accuracy um it's it's just a spectacular spectacular ability i mean we might see a bunch of corrupted save files from people doing ridiculous things but and if we don't then you know hands off to the nintendo team that's the thing i don't think we will which is just wild i mean we haven't yet like there there, there's currently a duplication glitch that is caused by fuse but so far that's the only glitch that i've seen come out of any of these abilities which is absolutely mind-blowing because every single one of these abilities should break the physics engine of any game and they would break the physics engine of basically any other game but this is zelda i was gonna say talk about talk about destiny you introduce one perk and it breaks everything i now recuse myself from the conversation Uh, that was a smart decision (laughs) on your part yes um but no like it's absolutely mind-blowing to me that nintendo has this magic this polish where they can take a game that is so heavily reliant on physics in general breath of the wild was one of the most physics based engines games that we've ever played and now tears of the kingdom is the same but then they added all of these abilities that should break every single one of those rules and it doesn't break the game somehow some way i don't know but it's amazing so i i think it's crazy how we're talking about this we're we're so shocked when this is coming from a developer who has spent seven years making this game and I think might be the only developer and this might be one of the only franchises in general where the player base has seven years of patience for a new game 
and isn't mad about it. Well, in fairness, in that seven years, people were still figuring out new things to do in Breath of the Wild. So, well, like- sure, but this isn't. <laughs> but this isn't the first big gap between major games from Zelda or Nintendo. No, the gap between Elder Scrolls games is going to end up being something like what? When did Skyrim come out? Twenty eleven. Yeah, sounds about right. That was 12 years ago, and it's probably going to be another four or five years before we get. <laughs> so, like, what? we've gotten an announcement. A, ch- a <laughs> child could have been born on Skyrim release date, and they will be in college by the time the sequel comes out. I mean, yeah, it, and it sounds ridiculous, but but at the same time, it it shouldn't be. It, it is so shocking, but at the same time, we know so much from nintendo to be a great developer who's really thoughtful they when it comes to zelda specifically they make sure that everything is top tier it's got to be the best like you can't have problems and and unlike we as i said destiny always has bug issues but that game you know people aren't patient for that game things come out constantly for that but with zelda the fan base is patient. They're willing to wait for that level of greatness that we expect and know Nintendo to de- to deliver, and, and and they really have. I will just say, I just did the math on that. If Elder Scrolls Six comes out in 2026, it will have been 15 years between games. Hey, good mental math on you. That's not mental math. I did it on a calculator. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. But thank you. I appreciate you. Um, No. So it's a wonderful point. And I think one of the things that Tears of the Kingdom is doing a few things simultaneously. Obviously, it's breaking new ground in terms of mechanics and systems within video games. Another thing that it's really doing is putting on a masterclass of explaining why, one, turning over your team is a bad idea. Like mass mass layoffs, you know, that's a, that's a huge thing that's happening in the game industry right now overall is massive studios who made some of the most classic games you can think of. You know, they're one title, one bad title away from from a huge round of layoffs in which all those people leave the studio. Look at Bioware. I was just going to say yeah. that. Yeah, look at Bioware. That makes me so sad. Yeah, look at Bioware. I mean, the Mass Effect trilogy, right? All the people who made that game. Right, Dragon Age. Some, some, some of the most acclaimed, one of the most acclaimed uh, video game trilogies of all time, right? And all it takes, yeah, it's trilogy. Three of the most trilogies, and you've got, you've got Mass Effect, Dragon Age, and Coder's not a trilogy, but those two, and well, Coder original was. Yeah, but I think that's split up between different teams. The Dragon Age team, I don't, is not the same as the Mass Effect team, but, uh, but yes, you're right. It's still those teams all went. Those two teams specifically went through. Both of them went through massive but, layoffs. But the point is, all all it takes is one anthem for that entire team to be gutted, <laughs> and for one Andromeda, and and for them and for them to all go away and move on to other things, right? And what that what that leaves you with is a situation where you have no lineage of knowledge within a game studio, right? Now look at Nintendo, right? Who uh, ostensibly this is basically the same team. I'm sure some people have moved on to other things, but it's the same core team. That made Breath of the Wild. They work on this thing for seven years, and it feels like the same people who worked on Breath of the Wild because it is the same people, right? Did like they, they were they were given time and uh, and uh, agency to iterate on the thing that they had already made over a long period of time. Is this the same team that worked on Skyward Sword? 
Well, I mean, the, I don't think it's that far back. Well, the creative the creative direction is still in place. I mean, it's still it's still Eiji Onuma and you know the people underneath him. Like the Zelda team, as I understand it, in terms of key players and people making decisions, the idea people like is has remained unchanged for quite a long time. So that's great. And why should like why shouldn't it? The Zelda series has probably the highest consistent level of quality in all of video games. I would absolutely agree with that statement. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, so so you've got that. And then the other thing it's doing is we haven't even talked about like the the whole graphical fidelity angle of all this yet, right? Because another thing that people were so worried about was, hey, the Switch is kind of old at this point, and the Switch was behind the curve in terms of power when it came out. That was seven years ago, right? We've had games on the Switch that have uh, struggled, right? Yeah. I mean, Age of Calamity dear god um <laughs> running a solid 12 frames per second at, at some it. points right it's great but yeah i mean some games truly have struggled on the switch it's it's an aging platform um and common wisdom says that it's on its way out and we're gonna get something else uh, like who knows what that is or when that is but it's got to happen sometime soon um but and, and this game this game does not run at 60 frames per second this is a 30 frames per second 1080p game it is not even you know 4k or doesn't have ray tracing none of that stuff what it is is an incredibly consistent incredibly polished final product um it runs perfectly on the switch it it, you know if it has any graphical hiccups i haven't found them yet frame rate stutters i haven't noticed them um so you know in addition to that the the point that i'm making about keeping your team intact over a long period of time. What this is really showing me is that the emphasis on just having the biggest and best graphics is truly could not be further from the most important thing in modern day game design. A lot of people are treating it like it is, but man, if you put all that extra energy into your systems and the, the function of these games the way that they work the way that these pieces interlock together if you really put your effort into that it doesn't freaking matter if your game has ray tracing Mm -hmm. people are going to play it for a thousand hours because it just works like this yeah i i can't add anything to that rant because it's accurate like that is a true true statement all the way around does anybody have anything else they want to say about the new abilities before we get out of here? Uh, out of this section, just yeah, I, I, all abilities combined just make it feel like the the ultimate sandbox game. Um, that you can really, really do anything, uh, and the fact that like you know you can combine ultra hand with recall, you can like recall something, um, which this this was in the trailer, uh, so I don't feel bad about saying anything about it but it's uh if you those like pieces of falling sky that you see you can use recall on that and shoot yourself like ride that all the way up um and it goes pretty far um i also love that you can just like grab whatever out of recall so like if you're recalling a ball somewhere you can just grab it and then pull it out of recall immediately um it also has a very far range (laughs) like I was noticing that. I mean, like, uh, I was trying to use recall on something, and I was able to do that from about double the distance that yeah, I thought I was going to be able I to. Yeah, I don't think there's a range on recall. There, there's there been times where I've had, like, boxes go, like, so far away, and I've just recalled them back from, like, when I could barely see it. 
Like it's, it's awesome. That it's, is incredible. It's, it's actually, man, I didn't even think about this. So, um, this happened on the surface, but it's not spoilery. So I'll go ahead and talk about it. I was chasing a star fragment and it landed in a, so it landed on a cliff edge next to a body of water. And I, you know, was climbing over there and, you know, when a star fragment, when you get close to it on the surface, um, it, uh, the light beam goes away and it kind of tumbles down so you can collect it. Right. Well, in this instance, what that meant was that the star fragment fell into the lake, you know? Yeah. And, oh, so, no. and so I'm sitting there like, crap, how do I get this thing? What I ended up doing was dropping a shield using ultra hand to use the shield as like a bowl, that I that I put underwater and like I scooped it up and brought the star fragment to me. I didn't even think to use recall in that instance, and I probably could have. It would have just shooped the star fragment right back up along the edge of the cliff, and I could have collected it. Yeah, that's incredible. I didn't even think about that. No, it's I. It's there's just so it's like infinite possibilities, and every time I'm playing it, I find like new things to do with it. Um, Ultra hand is just. It's it's so good for it, it's just so good. It, it like I can't go back to Breath of the Wild. I think in the same way after playing with all the abilities here because I'm just thinking like oh I'm using Magnesis. I could be like attaching this to this, but I'm not. I'm just throwing a metal ball around. But it's 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 not to say that like you know Breath of the Wild is, is still a fantastic game, but it's it's gonna go. Going back to it is going to be very interesting after playing with all these mechanics. That's honestly one of my biggest thoughts. I mean, Breath of the Wild to me is, I've said on the podcast, um, it is my favorite video game of all time. We've ranked it our highest of all Zelda games. I love Breath of the Wild so much. And I think it's a credit to Tears of the Kingdom that exactly what you're saying is true. I'm doing all these things, and then I'm thinking to myself, man, how, like, is Breath of the Wild going to be fun anymore? Because just the, the sheer amount of things that you can do is so impressive. And it's such, it's such a step up over what Breath of the Wild gives you to work with. And yes, I'm sure Breath of the Wild is still going to be lots of fun. Like in the future, I was telling Matt this the other day. In the in future playthroughs, when we're not doing this for pod, I'm sure this is going to be like what I do with Ocarina and Majora. Where whenever I get in that mood, I will play Breath of the Wild and then I'll go straight into Tears of the Kingdom. And I'm sure it's going to be a great time, and I'm going to love it. But, man, just the fact that that thought is even on the table, you know? Like, playing the, the fact that this thought, or the, the fact that this game makes me wonder whether or not I will have fun with Breath of the Wild anymore should tell you everything you need to know about how effective it is. Um, it's astounding. Astounding to me. So I think we've canvassed all of the new abilities pretty thoroughly. What I want to do before we get out of here is just open up the floor real quick. Um, any straggler thoughts that anyone's having about this introductory kind of area? Uh, Matt, I'm going to pass it to you first. Um, I don't think I have any straggler thoughts about the opening area other than I, I want to have a discussion about how do we feel about this area versus the Great Plateau. I so I think as much as I love Great Sky Island, I actually think Great Plateau was a better intro area just for the fact that it it was more compact. There was a lot more to do in Great Plateau. And maybe maybe I didn't spend enough time on Great Sky Island. That might be a me problem. But I felt more like 
Great Plateau was a better intro to the game from all of like the resource gathering, cooking. Uh, there was more items. There was more combat, more varied combat. The I think the shrines are better on Great Sky Island. Um, That's been a theme for me in the entire game that yeah, I've played so great, far. The, the, shrines the shrines are awesome. Yeah, the shrines in Tears of the Kingdom, I think, are at least so far for me better by by far than the shrines in uh, Breath of the Wild. But yeah, I, I actually find myself thinking that Great Plateau was moderately better. Like, not a ton better, but just like a little bit better. It's so hard because so much of... This is, this is going to be the thing, and I, I guarantee you right now, when we get to our Tears of the Kingdom review season... And where you're trying to answer that question, is Tears of the Kingdom better than Breath of the Wild? So much of it is going to come down to the fact that with Breath of the Wild, we had this revolutionary newness. And I think the Great Plateau is the ultimate like apotheosis of that, right? Uh It's the Great Plateau was a revelation in game design generally, you know? Um, It was was brilliant. It was magnificent. And it introduced you in – into this style of game in such a perfect way. I love great sky Island. I think it's awesome. I think that there's a lot of really fun exploration to do there, even in some ways more so than the great plateau. I mean, we haven't talked about this yet, but I think the addition of caves in this game is such an awesome change. Like seriously, such an awesome change. It, it, for one thing, it lends itself so well to like just a, a big Zelda feeling. You know, um, being able to like go into caves and explore them and find some treasure, right? Breath of the Wild didn't really have much of that. Um, and Great Sky Island has a fair amount of those. So that it's all a lot of fun. Great Sky Island is awesome. I think I do agree with you, Matt, that – so when I think of why Great Plateau is successful, the thing I always come back to is it is the entire game – boiled down into one three-hour section yes right and great sky island even though it like it it does a it does a similar thing you know it, it feels sort of the same as that it's mostly just really good for education on the new systems but it does not feel as successful as a microcosm of the entire tears of the kingdom experience as breath as a great plateau does and i understand why you say that but also it has a much harder job to do than the great plateau considering that tears of the kingdom has the sky islands and it has hyrule and you know has some other things that i'm not going to talk about right it has like the great plateau had to summarize just the overworld but the great sky island has to do an introduction and there's also two other complete sections of area to explore that it can't just like it can't do a good justification of covering that right that the great Paco could as you said yeah i know yeah i think that that's right look the great sky island is beautiful and i think it it's so effective at what it sets out to do it's just if we're directly comparing the two and you had to ask me to pick which one of them I enjoyed more, nothing will ever replace my my time on the Great Plateau, especially the first time. Um, just nothing ever will. It was a magical, magical experience. I will also say that nothing uh, – so there, there's like a big camera moment that happens, especially like when you jump off of 
the sky island for the first time and you're like you're diving down towards the surface and then like the big theme kicks in and there's the big camera sweep right it's supposed to be the same sort of deal as when you kind of come out of the shrine of resurrection for the first time and you stand over that cliff and you see all of hyrule you get the title right um and it is really cool it's a great moment uh it was not as emotionally affecting for me as like Seriously, nothing will ever beat that first time you come out of the Shrine of Resurrection and you look over that cliff and the title cuts in. Um, I did not have anything that was that impactful of a moment on Great Sky Island. And, you know, uh, whether or not this game is better than Breath of the Wild, not even remotely prepared to answer that question. I will say that there's a lot more things that go into that than just what we're talking about right now. You know, lots more, lots more. But just you know, trying to compare apples to apples here. Um, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with it. What do you think, Dante? So I think I'm in the minority. Just, I enjoyed Great Sky Island more than Great Plateau. Um, I think it's just, it's mainly because it felt like there were a lot of systems and then there was a lot of stuff I was explaining like, oh, you see this thing? Well, there's more of it some other place that you'll get to later. Like, it felt like a good introduction to everything uh, and a, like, a tease of, like, hey, here's what to come, here's what you could do, but you're going to have to figure that all out for yourself. Um, and I think that's that's partially why I like it more because um, it's, it's less of, like, a this is the whole loop boiled down into three hours. It's a this is the potential of the entire game boiled down in three hours, and I think that's... I, I think that's why I like it more. Um, I also... I like the... Um, actually, I'll save that for the the later, but uh, there there's the, the bonus boss, the, the optional boss. Did you... It's in between uh, when you go through the... Uh, from the fusibility to the ascendability, there's like this big circle platform in the middle that's got uh, like this block tower. I didn't do I this. Don't know what that is. No. The, yeah, it's it's an optional boss. It do is. Do I need to go back up there? It is very Zelda like. It it is a very good introduction to bosses in this game. All right. Well, now I know what I'm doing when I <laughs> when I go to bed later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dante. Man. <laughs> I'm excited for this. Well, to be fair, this guy's put 40 hours into the game. He should know more than us. I, I actually, the first time I went through the, I didn't do it either because I was too scared I was going to die because enemies hit like a truck in this game. Mm-hmm. I will say I have died more in the early hours of this game than I ever did with Breath of the Wild. A lot of that is just uh, me trying to adapt to the new systems and how they interact with combat. A lot of it is that there's more enemies and they're more powerful, right? Um, and enemies that are familiar from Breath of the Wild have new attack patterns. And that's throwing me for a loop. Right. Well, and and you'll find that, especially on Great Sky Island, some of the Zonai opponents use things like Fuse and and will create new weapons at the time you attack them. And it's not always the same weapons that they create when you go to fight them, and, which makes it interesting. Yeah. I had a Zonai construct fuse a, a flamethrower to its sword. And that guy was especially... In, in that early point, like the early time of the game where you don't have the glider and you can't rely on like height plus like arrow bullet time to help you out, you know, um, man, that was a that was tough. That was a tough fight. Uh, I ended up having to rely on some ice chew jelly 
to help me out there, which uh, which worked like a dream. But yes, it was it was intense for sure. I I do like how one of the first constructs you fight that has like a fuse thing. He's just got like a wooden panel fuse to a, a stick. Yeah. It's it's so goofy. And then the next guy has like a rock. It's like it's I love. I I just love everything about this game. <laughs> No, it's amazing. This it's incredible. It's incredible. I will say one of the things that I'm loving so much about this game is that even though there's so much new to learn, seriously, like a very steep learning curve, um, I'm still finding that my Breath of the Wild muscle memory is not going to waste. Like the way that you interact with this game, the way that the moment to moment gameplay works, you know, stamina, attack, cadence, all that kind of stuff. It felt uh, it felt like hand in glove to me as somebody who's played like. 500 hours of breath of the wild right and i love that i love that so much to me this is what a sequel to a game should be right if you're gonna if you're gonna make a direct sequel to something then it should be equal parts iterative and also familiar and that's tears of the kingdom to a t this is equivalent to terminator 2 halo 2 right taking a great thing and somehow making it even better yeah, so far, you know, wh- whether or not I kind of <laughs> think that it's better at the end of the day on balance, we'll see. But but so far, yes, I am feeling like Tears of the Kingdom is a resounding success and um, is doing some incredible, incredible things that I never would have thought were possible. It's it's incredible. Yeah. The only things that I have to add about wrapping this up is I think this introduction does a really good job of using uh specific like cutscenes, but not too often, right? A lot of the time where you're talking to characters, it's just the line on the text like text on the screen that you like click through. And there's just they sprinkle in these moments of cutscenes where people are talking to you. And I think that the, they strike a really good balance of not too much cutscene and not too much clicking through text bubbles. And and I thought that that was really well done and I loved that. The only other thing that I have to say is, and this is a carryover from Breath of the Wild, I'm not sold on Zelda's voice actress. That's just a personal opinion. It's a bit too airy. It's, she just doesn't really feel like Zelda when she talks, but that that's just such a small niggle for such a great game. Okay, that's the second time you've used the word niggle, and I'm curious what what that is. Like a like context clues, I get it, but like, where did you pick that up? I've never heard that before, ever. No, I don't know where I got that word. It's I don't know. I don't know how to explain. Like, uh, it's just one of those little things that it's not really a big deal, but it's just yeah. You know. Okay, fair enough. All right, Matt, do you have anything that you want to say before we get out of here? Um. I think that this has been such an excellent start to a game and it has differentiated itself in the right ways. And it makes me so excited to get in the next probably week, 40 ish hours into this game. And I'm so, so, so excited to just dive headfirst into every nook and cranny that I can find. And I'm, I'm, I think it was worth the seven-year wait. I, I do. Also, niggle, a verb, cause slight but persistence annoyance, discomfort, or anxiety. Quote, a suspicion niggled at the back of her mind. Interesting. 
Hmm. All right. A little vocabulary education there. All right. I think that brings us to the end of our discussion on the introductory chapters of Tears of the Kingdom. We'll be back next week to talk uh, a little bit more in detail about this game. And um, the next four weeks are going to be very interesting. I know uh, not this coming week, but the week after that, we're going to have Max on to talk specifically about the systems of Tears of the Kingdom. I'm sure he's going to have some great insights um, just about the the minor miracle that Nintendo pulled off here. And didn't you say that he was completely blind going into this? Like he had no idea he there was even new abilities. He did not know what the new abilities were, any of them. He com- he remained completely unspoiled on this entire game. It's incredibly impressive. Yep. Seriously. I think he's having a great time with it. So anyway, the next four weeks are going to be very fun and very interesting. Um, We can't wait to play more Tears of the Kingdom. I'm sure that y'all are feeling the exact same way. Going to be a very fun time. Uh, Jackson, Dante, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. So happy that we could have you back, Jackson and Dante. Happy that we could have you on for the first time. Oh, thank you for having me. I always love a lot of fun. Yeah, I always love coming on. Are you going to play Phantom Hourglass, Jackson? Of course I'm going to play Phantom Hourglass. Okay. All right. If it's, I can get a copy. It's tough for me to even like think about that right now. Like the 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 thought of like playing any other Zelda game but Tears of the Kingdom right now is uh it's messing with me. So, that's fun. Uh, I'll get in that mood. It's going to be fine. Uh, great episode though uh, we we will be back next week to talk a little bit more about this game and uh, Matt and I will let everybody know in advance kind of what the structure of the next episode is going to be we need to talk about that amongst ourselves and figure out what that is the ongoing struggle is that we just um, you know it's tough to find a way to talk about this game on an ongoing basis without spoiling too much and without Matt and I spoiling each other accidentally just trying to plan the thing yeah, so exactly um tough very tough but we will find a way to do it worry you not all right y'all ready to get out of here let's do it okie dokie if you enjoyed today's episode and you would like a little more sacred realms in your life you can head over to patreon.com slash sacred realms pod and become a patron if you've got no rupees it's not a problem five star apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us more reviews means that more people see our show that makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind the scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with more thoughts on Tears of the Kingdom. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. Tears of the Kingdom can be played on the Nintendo Switch. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We'll catch y'all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.